Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet, playwright, producer of this show. Now we're going on to a really interesting episode here, episode 148, The Dark Side of Guilt, Pride, and Perfection in the Art World. Yes, I know, I wish these titles would get a little, little shorter sometimes, but we're going to do we're covering a lot of subjects sometimes inside of them and it kind of works better for the format and the amount of time i i put towards it now naturally because we have guilt pride and perfection those are going to be the subtopics within the outline of the show okay so we'll just start with a little in the introduction and go from there oftentimes i i find from reading other people's works that are sent to aerial chart or maybe just reading it independent of that just on general in a, in a book that I might be sent, or, or even to something that you might read on the internet, or to somebody's link, or a, a possible uh, review, um, a proposal, or, or maybe just on, on the internet in general, or maybe just even just the work I have around the, around the house that I might reread. I always notice that even in the best of artists, there are certain trends that, that seem to occur that, that help explain a bit of their work. And I really think that in this particular uh, episode, in this issue, and don't get me wrong, it's not like there's not 20 other things that could be going on. I'm picking these three out because I find them to be the most recurring. You might disagree and find something else. That's fine. Hell, you might just say, hey, this is all product of depression, Mark, so it could be anything. Maybe that's valid too, okay? I'm not claiming to be an expert on it. But I am claiming that I've identified a number of things, and I want to be able to talk about those on the show because they can help uh, writers in general right now as we're speaking. So the first one is guilt. Now, I see this uh, probably the most of, of any type of writing in terms of a theme, or even just in terms of certain certain turning points in the work, whether it's a fiction or poem or even a, a nonfiction piece, where a person is either struggling with something or has struggled with something, but they, for some reason, have built up a, a lot of guilt. Now, inside guilt, uh, I can have some subtopics over here as well. All right. Um, we got a parental one. We got a marital one or a relationship one. You got one that could be racial. And then you got one that could be sexual. So we'll talk about that. All right. Now, because I've read so much over my lifetime, even just currently, I mean, I'm, I just on poems alone, I, I read about literally 3,000 a year. So it, it's one of the reasons why I can afford to be um, so picky, so to say, just even on the title situation, because I've seen it before. And then it's like, come on, you know, a poem named Cabin, a poem named Night, poem named uh, Blue Sky. I mean, let's get real over here. Our job is to be 
original as possible. Our job is to try to interpret even stuff that's been said before in a different manner, in a different assembly of those words, in a, in a different meaning sometimes of those words. And the whole creative pairings or the whole creative jumble of something new that might still talk about the same issue because you're bringing it to a different audience. And I know there's plenty of people out there, and I, I rightfully call them cynics, that say, oh, it's all been written already. And I'm like, why, do, why are you writing that? If that's really what you believe, then get off the stage and let the rest of us do our job then, okay? All right, but if you don't believe that, stop saying something nonsensical, okay? Because no, it hasn't all been written, all right? The microwave wasn't around when Shakespeare was around, okay? You got that? Jules Verne might have talked about us going to the moon, but guess what? There was no rockets during his time. So it was just a fantasy. It's not like it's now or reality. I mean, I think we go to space more than the astronauts change their underwear. So come on. But because of these new things that have happened, because of the, the data transferring it with the technology, because of the, the new type of privacy concerns, where we're less concerned about a government snooping on us and you're more concerned about your neighbor snooping on us because now they have the equipment they can buy in any common store and snoop on you. They can snoop on the police. You know, I, I'm not giving anybody any ideas here, but, you know, they got scanners you can listen to where the police are going to and go there for yourself if you want to either gawk at it or maybe you can do something bad there. So you can literally track these folks. It's common to find this stuff out. You don't need a special license or special equipment. It's all there for us. So it, it allows us to have so many different things that we can think and that we can talk and that we can write about, things that could not have been done even 50 years ago. So do not pay attention to all that. It's all been written already. That's people who want to give up. If that's what you want to do, give up, then give up. Don't try to mess it around for the rest of us who are not doing that. Now, guilt. We can... I, I believe, in many ways, lots of writers, because of the nature of internalizing things in order to be able to put that together in a creative fashion, well, we also wind up internalizing other things in our lives. They say, maybe this is just a stereotype, but they say that women are more internalizers because they're more uh, emotionally uh, driven creatures than men. But I find there are plenty of men that internalize too. So I'm not really sure how, how true that really plays out. But what I will say is artists in general, whether you're a writer or a sculptor or whatever, we are natural internalizers because it's part of the process that we use in order to create. It doesn't even matter if we somehow transferred everything what we were thinking that day or that week, you know, onto the phone notes or, or the or paper notes or whatever which is important to do, and we're going to talk about that later in a more formal fashion on the journal episode in the later part of the month. But even if you did all that, it doesn't mean you don't still have stuff inside you that's, that's internalized, that's there. Sometimes what happens is the stuff you put down on paper, your notes, they connect later on when you go back to them to the stuff that's inside of you. And together, that helps make some kind of creative formula on a temporary basis for you to put something together that's creative, that's unique, that can connect to people, that communicates out to the world. That's how it works. So we're natural internalizers. Unfortunately, being natural internalizers means that lots of times we're stuck with various things in guilt of us that, that, that carry on. We have to figure out ways to do whatever we can to minimize or excise that out of our systems. You know, And, and in many cases, I'm sorry to say that 
the natural internalization of an artist can also contribute to writer's block, which is a low form of depression, or just full-blown depression later on. So it's important to not carry all that much with you. Now, guilt. Let's start off with the first one, parental. I know lots of people in their personal lives that have lots of parental guilt. And I think one of the, and I'm, I'm a parent, so I can speak about this pretty darn extensively. One of the problems with parental guilt and, of course, writing or, or being an artist is sometimes people, and I'm no different, so I'm not actually just pointing this at you. I'm pointing it at me, too. Sometimes we have the issues where we feel, you know, we could do more here or we could, we could do more there. You know, if we didn't have to do you know, so much so much of this or so much of that. And and to clarify that, what I mean is there are times when you're a parent, you know, like, geez, maybe I could be doing better here if I spent more time doing this versus the writing. Or maybe I could do better writing if I just wasn't just so deep into parenting. Well, there isn't an easy answer to that, okay? So I'm not going to pretend that I have the answer because I don't. I've been writing 36 years. I've been a parent 14 years, all right? So I've been a writer a lot longer than I've been a parent. That's unusual only because I started so late in life doing all this. So that's the reason why that's sort of lopsided. Okay. One of the advantages for me is that because I've been writing for so long, you know, I, I have certain rituals. I have certain creative shortcuts that I can employ within myself to get things done on a more speedy basis. To try to do the, the time that I, I put aside and use it to the best of my ability. Somebody who's a relatively new writer within five years, and now they're suddenly a parent, that's going to be a much harder task to do. It might seem like a huge juggle or a huge balance. And the only clear answer for you, really, that I have, because this is what I do, and this is what I would recommend you do, is write or create the best you can on appointment. You might be in the middle of parenting and doing something, and you just write down some notes that come to you, and you deal with it later. That's all you can do. Does it mean that you might lose the flavor of the moment? Yeah, that could happen. Does it even mean that maybe you create something later? It could have been better if you created it earlier? Yeah, that, that's always possible too. But what you can't do is you can't let that become a guilt factor. That, that can't be some kind of regret. Because I, I've never been, as much as I'm headlong into writing and all the stuff that I do, I've never had a moment where I'm like, Oh, man, I, I, I regret being a parent. Oh, man, I regret writing on this when I could have done that. I make the decision, and that's that. You know, my kids are old enough now where I could do that a little bit more. You know, I might say, listen, we'll, we'll go play that video game later. I'm in the middle of i got to get something done now. i got to get this out of the way. Okay, Daddy, thank you. Other times, you know, it's so pressed upon them that I need to do something, whether it is reviewing their homework or checking out some art thing they're trying to do for school or otherwise that I need to be in that moment. And that's, that, and that's it for writing at that time. I mean, maybe it comes back later and maybe I do it tomorrow. Oh, well, but whatever decision that's made, it can't be made out of guilt. It has to be made out of whatever you feel at that moment is a priority. And, and it can't be made out of uh, some kind of regret because it's nothing more. I feel to betray yourself as an artist to regret this or to, to regret that. You do it when you can do it. It's just that simple. There's no other incredible explanation for it. Uh, there definitely isn't any magical formula because there isn't. It's the reason why you'll read plenty of people uh, in the past as, uh, as artists uh, and, and uh, um, 
Kafka comes to mind because he's been the most most vocal of like I regret marrying, I regret having children. There's times I want to throw all these people out the window. I mean, literally, he just said that. I mean, he's not playing because he let all that just get get out of hand because he's also suffering from depression. So all that together, that's not an easy task. And he wound up saying some things that are that are painful, that are hurtful, probably hurt and pain to him. Uh, who knows if he truly meant that he didn't want to have a family after all. He'd just rather stay writing in a room someplace and talk about giant flies eating them and things like that. But that could be the depression talking. You know, that could be the, you know, the um, the voice of the of the mental illness that he's dealing with. Or it could just be a, a momentary regret that he wrote down on paper. And later on, he, you know, regretted the regret. We don't know. And I can't even give him the benefit of the doubt either way or not, because I honestly don't know. We don't really know. We'll never know. That's between him and his conscience, and if he believes in his God. But for us, with all the tools that we have on hand and all the things that we know about art and about depression, about parenting, we could do a better job than the people of the past, I really believe. We just have to do it. So I would say to you that you have to uh, put down the art sometimes as an appointment and do your best to meet it, you know? From 9 to 11 tonight, this is when we're going to do stuff because I already got these kids to bed at 8. And then you got to figure it out from there because remember, when you have uh, kids, there's a good chance you might have a marriage or some kind of person involved in a relationship too. They might also want your attention as well. So there's a lot going on with all of that. You know, and I, and I understand that. That's why it could, maybe sometimes it's not going to be able to be a, a regular nightly or, or daily thing. Maybe sometimes it's it, it's a bi-weekly thing or a weekly thing. Maybe it takes longer than because of all the other commitments you have. But if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. If you do that way, even if it seems like you're not getting as much done, at least what you're getting done is not tinged with guilt and regret and all of that nonsense because there's nothing worse. I, I feel in many ways it harms your art and it, and it often betrays who you are as a as a, a parent or, or even as a spouse or a significant other, whatever new term they came up with yesterday. I'm trying to catch up on it, all right? If you could do it that way in a more pure sense along that line, then that's fine. Then be sometimes you're going to make some exceptions. Maybe you can't make that appointment, something comes up, or maybe it's a situation where you literally tell your, your spouse or your significant other, Listen, I need you to go jump on their homework. I need you to go get them to bed and get that ready. I need to kind of get something a little earlier. I'm feeling a little bit behind on something. I got something going on. I need to go do it. As long as you don't make that into some kind of a habit where you're, you know, you're taxing people's patience or something, there's nothing wrong with that, too. It's another option, another avenue that you can explore. But whatever you do, don't do it with guilt, please. Now... As much as we're talking parental, we're also talking marital. And it really has the same sort of formula. We even kind of crisscross into that. It's the same situation. It can be more involved if you have if you have a spouse or if you have a significant other or just simply a girlfriend, a boyfriend, uh, that really are against it. That that can be a real challenge in itself. You know, I've never told somebody how they should romantically align themselves. That's that's up to them. It's a very personal choice. It's not an artistic one, but what I will say this, and because I've done this before, okay, in the past before I was married, I made sure that my writing was still a priority regardless of relationship, and I explained to the person straight up front, this is what it is. 
Does it mean you're less important? But it means that this is as important as well. Some are going to understand. And you're going to have a, a wonderful relationship until maybe it ends in a different fashion that has nothing to do with art. Or maybe it ends in you get married and have children, which is what I did later. Or or not. Or it could be, which happened to me a couple of times. Happened to me in America, happened to me in Germany, happened to me in England. Yeah, just about around the world, actually. Where they're like, yeah, 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 which lots of people do. And then they wind up becoming somebody else because they really wasn't meaning that because they thought that somehow uh, they were going to change you and suddenly you were going to do something different, you know? And I don't know how to put this in a polite manner. So I'm telling you right now, and I told, I literally had to tell a girl one, one time, I said, listen, just because we've already slept like 10 times, that doesn't lessen my commitment to art. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop being a writer. It doesn't mean that now I'm so distracted that I can't get this stuff done. I already told you the way it was. That's not going to change. Maybe you've changed in this situation, but I haven't, and I'm not going to. I feel I've been honest and sensitive about it with you up front from the beginning. I don't know what more I can do because it's not going to change. Sometimes that person walks away, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes you have to literally push them away because sometimes people just won't accept that or can't understand it, and they're really the same thing. And then they have to go. Even if they stick around, they're sticking around out of, you know, uh, frustration. Or they're sticking around of maybe one day it'll change. No, it's not. So this is not a good idea for you to stick around then. This is a problem for you. It's not easy to find people that understand. That understand that sometimes your notes can call upon you finally to put together something. That sometimes a certain mood or, or cloud or, you know, muse or whatever you want to call it at the moment spirit can come over you at, at any time and they're like you know i need to go out and check this out and do something here people can't understand that it's not like there's a flag that raises in your eyes or there's something uh, that indicates something on your chest need to be a writer right now doot, doot, doot. It, it doesn't work that way so it's very i find no matter what relationship you have in this situation whether it's parental or marital you have to do your best to try to to rather interpret what's happening to the people around you so they can have some kind of general understanding. In the end, guess what? I find more than anything else, you might never be able to get them to understand. And that's probably okay because sometimes you can. But as long as you have people that trust you and that you trust, you'll always be able to make this work with everything. Really, it's about trust in the end. They don't have to understand. They just need to trust you. And the trust is also built on your own decisions and your own actions, folks. Okay? You can't keep leaving people high and dry. Trust me, I need to go write this. Trust me, I need to go do this. Trust me, I need to go edit this. And then you don't come back to do what you're supposed to be doing on the other end of the fence, so to speak. That's where trust is. They, they need to have the trust in you that there'll be times you need to put that down and go do something. There's times that you're not going to stick in with everything. There's times where you're just going to do everything and that has to be put down to later or another day. That's how you have trust, when you have some give and take, when you have some, some general compromise. Because guess what, folks? As long as you're not just a writer with yourself in your own life, always writing, you're autom automatically, everything that you do around you is going to be some form of a compromise. That's just the way it is. If you want all of these things, that's what you have to do. There's no way around that. 
And if you if you get if you feel like you get guilted on that, you need to take care of that because there's no reason to have that. If you want all of these things, well, guess what? You have to attend to all of these things. You have to do whatever you can to make each one of these things a priority. And understand understand that there will be times of the course of a week or a day or even a moment where you might have to switch that priority just because that situation demands more of your attention than the other one. That's just the way it is. I don't believe in the end it makes you lesser a writer or an artist, and I don't think I believe it makes you lesser a parent. That's where guilt comes in because it tells you that crap when it isn't true. Okay? My kids are not out there heisting, you know, jewelry at somebody's house right now and shooting drugs and having babies everywhere. All right? Why is that? Because they still have known me being there and my values and the things that are important. And many instances, they've even joined me on writing and, and won some of their own contests in school. Does it mean they're going to grow up to be writers? Probably not. It's not even a goal of mine. I just want to expose them to the arts so they know what it's out there. They have an appreciation of it. That's all you can do. But exposing them to that, not only does it give them appreciation for you and everybody out there in the world that are doing things artistically, but it also gives them appreciation of me, that this is a part of me. This is a part of daddy. Daddy's making a show right now. Daddy's writing something right now. You know, come bother me for a second. Yeah, when I'm done, we'll go do that then. Yeah, no problem. And that's it. They understand that. And why do they understand that? Because I've built the trust. And that's what you need to do. The trust that they know that when I say something, that's what I'm going to follow up and do. The art has to trust me. I have to trust the art. The people around me have to do the same thing. They have to trust me because they're not going to always understand the art, even the show. You know, it's a digital reproduction of my words uh, with some equipment in my office, uh, and that's it. That's all they're going to understand from the academic level. Why I wanted to do the show, why I think it's important. You know, I can speak about that all day long to them, and it doesn't mean that it's going to register. And that's fine. It doesn't need to register. All that needs to register is that people can count on you. If they're going to be in your life, they have to be able to count on you, and you have to be able to count on them. And when you do that, that solves a lot of your problems. You shouldn't even have much guilt. You might have a, a little bit of, oh, man. It's too bad I had to do this and I could have been going to do that. I mean, you know, I've been to soccer games forever now, and there'll be times when I have to let them go. I'm like, come on. You know, you got two games this week. I'm going to one. I got some other stuff to do on the other one. I can't go to all of them. Sometimes they're out of town. I'll try to make that one that's more important than the one in town. The one in town, I'll let my wife handle. That's what you do. You trade things off on and on, on and off. That's what you do. But there's no guilt involved, and the minute you let that happen, that that's where you that's where you start stumbling. That's where that's where you start falling apart, and that's why I've dealt with lots of writers that they have those issues. You can even see it sometimes in their writing. You really shouldn't have that lament about those sort of things. Work on it and get that fixed, okay? If it's a problem, get it fixed now, because you're not going to stop being a writer, and you're not going to stop being a parent if you're a parent. You're really not. Remember, it's not like being married. Being a parent is you're, you're a parent forever, even when they're not there anymore. So be the best you can because uh, they remember that. And it's always what I always keep in the back of my mind all the time on how it allows me to become a priority is that, you know, these moments, they're not going to always be here. And I like to try to do as much as I can with them because they are going to remember that. And I tell you now how... You spent the time with your, with your children, it, it's, it's how they're going to judge you ultimately in the end. They're not going to judge you on every decision you made right or wrong. 
But oftentimes that's a joke later on. You just laugh at that. Because, <laughs> you know, we're going to be right and wrong all the time. We're human. But they're going to judge you in the end when they're in college or afterwards, or even when they become parents on what you've done. Did you make the time? Did you do this? Did you do that? That's what I do. I make sure that that's important because I know that's going to uh, make a, a real impact on them. And quite frankly, you know, as, as unusual as this may sound to you, um, I'm always more concerned in the end about them um, looking at me as a good father rather than as a good writer. I, I really just need them to be making sure that I'm the best I can as a father. I think that's important for them. It doesn't matter if they think I'm a great writer or not, or even if I'm a writer at all. It doesn't really matter for them, and it shouldn't. You know, my role has to be that parent. So it's really the same thing on the marital end. It really doesn't change too much. The only thing that really is changing in the marital situation, especially regards, uh, regarding guilt, is unlike a parent, you don't have to be married forever, and you might not even be married together. Remember, I got married much, much later in life. So I'm on my first marriage, and I promise you, uh, it'll be the last. It'll never happen again. <laughs> I can tell you that. Not that I'm not unhappy. It's just that uh, the amount of work and the amount of stuff you have to do on it is it's staggering. You, you couldn't write a book about it. it people would still wouldn't understand. It's just difficult, especially if you're, if you're an artist. And it, like any other relationship, you know, if you wanted to, to go anywhere or at least stay, uh, you know, vital, and 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 content and maybe even happy uh you have to work at it it's not something you put to the side and no different than a garden you know mark why is that plant dying i don't know why do you figure and water it you know like once every three weeks that's not going to really do it it's the same thing with relationships you have to put that kind of time into it and it's the same thing you might find in your relationship that you know there's a moment where you got to put that pen down that, that computer down and go there because that might be what's necessary at that moment now, all relationships are all about the small things and the small moments. They're not about the big things, right? You're already supposed to be a, a contributor to the income. You're supposed to be there to take care of that person and, and help them and be their equal and, and help with the children and the chores and all that. Those are all things you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to be getting drunk and acting like a fool and using drugs and gambling the rent money away or the mortgage or whatever. All of the things, those are not to be supposed to do. So all the big things you're already doing, those are givens, folks. They're, they're not something you can jump up and down about, you know? We don't live in that world anymore. It's not 1950, okay? Guys, when you get home, you're not looking at the phone and, and expecting dinner and a beer, okay? If you got that relationship, it won't last long anyway, okay? Because <laughs> reality is far different than that. You, you need to be pitching in. And with that understood, if you don't, well, guess what? You, you won't have that thing anymore. And then you have people with all these... Uh, these guilt-ridden uh, works that they, they put out. Low is me this, woe is me that. You know? Guys on third and fourth marriages. I, I'm not trying to be a jerk over here, okay? Because I understand I got married later in life, so, you know? But still, third and fourth marriage? I mean, I would think that by, I don't know, the second one, you've learned something about how to make a better selection or maybe how things you can change in yourself so somebody would want to stick around longer. That's just me. But there are certain mechanics to it. And unfortunately, some of the, choose, the choices that we make, whether they be in parental or, or in, in a marital field, they can affect our writing in terms of guilt. So those choices, the better they are, the less they have any kind of impact on our writing. Because I really feel that 
and you might you might realize this as well. You read some stuff that you're like, man, this could be that much better if it didn't have some of this back crap dropping it down and bringing it down. Yeah, I've read that so many times. Wow, they could have went to this direction. They could have went to that direction. But how could they? You know, if they got some dark cloud over their head all the damn time. You know, or they're like, oh, I'm just trying to do this in between this and that and whatever. Make yourself a schedule. And that's what you have to do. You know, I've known I've known some couples and, and, and sometimes I've done this myself, actually, uh, that um, there have been periods in their life or even they know a month or two that's going to happen. That a lot of things are going to be thrown at the same time that they got to make things as an appointment. I mean, I mean, anything from a date to maybe uh, a marital encounter. Let's just call it that. OK. And uh, they throw it on a calendar in a time and, and this is what they observe. I know it might sound mechanical to people. Hell, it might even sound uh, uh, not romantic. But guess what? It's still important. It still has merit. It still has a function. And quite frankly, it does tell you, and it tells the other person as well, that maybe we have to do this on a short-term basis, but it still means that our relationship is important and that it is a priority, and that we're making it, in there, even if we have to do it on calendar for a little while. And so don't let anybody mock any of that. You can do that for a little while. It still keeps things going, at least. All right? Rather than just shutting everything down and, yeah, I'm sorry. I haven't kissed you in two months uh, because we've been really busy. Truly, there's not a reason for that. I mean, you know, unless the other person's been in the hospital for two months. Come on. So you can do that. You know, get over the distaste of, I hate putting something like that on the calendar. Oh, well, it's not forever. And do it. It'll still it'll still be helpful and it'll still be productive at least. Now we have other um, guilt ones here. Uh, the one that I deal with a lot with writers is the the sexual one, meaning that you can tell sometimes that people are wrestling with certain things, but they're not formally out, meaning that they're gay and it, it just it surfaces in the writing, but they're not really out for whatever reason. And I always tell folks like this. Whenever they ask, because they often ask cryptic questions just as much as they write something that you can sort of tell, especially if you've been reading a lot for a long time. You know, Mark, what do you think about this when you would think about that? And I always tell them the same thing. You have to live the life that you want to live. And if that means that you want to put yourself in the closet because for whatever reason, you don't think the current situation can handle it, or uh, I know a couple of people that said I'm waiting for somebody to die first before I come out. I, I know I, this is I've heard this and it's not uncommon. I can't even have a comment on it because I just don't even have I don't even have the vocabulary to understand that. And I'm not, I just don't. I mean, that's a serious, serious thing. And all I can do is just do my best to respect it because I just I can't get that. Uh, but I just remind people that whatever they're doing. And whatever the reason is, or whatever the reason they gave themselves, okay, it's a choice. You can't call it something else. There's nothing worse than making a choice and then you're running away from it. Well, this made me do this and this made No, you're making a choice. No matter about all those other things. I've known plenty of people that came out, no matter what they were. And, and they live with the consequences because that's what you're doing. Whenever you make a choice... On that sexual basis, whether you're doing something or you're not doing something, you're revealing yourself or you're not revealing yourself, that is a choice. And there are pros and there are cons to that. 
You know, I've known people that came out and then they're like, uh, some of my friends uh, decided to not be my friends anymore because they felt that since I didn't share that with them, you know, I'm not really trustworthy, that I really never did trust them. And I, I'm not telling these folks, you know, that they need to judge that relationship by what that person just said. All I can say is this, and I don't mean to sound sappy, and I definitely don't mean to sound hallmark, but my definition of a friend is they're going to still be a friend at the end of the day if something changed. I lose my leg from diabetes. I'm still expecting that person to be my friend. If it turns out I sleep with this gender all along rather than that gender, I'm still expecting to be my friend. I don't really see how that changes things too much. Unless maybe there's something wrong with them. Maybe they've been a bigot all along, but because I didn't come out as gay, they just said, oh, he was straight, so I'm okay. I don't know. That could be true. That could not be true. They could really be that sensitive that, wow, that was a trust issue, and I don't know if I can trust you anymore. It's hard to know. But I do know from experience that in the end, a friend is a friend, and they tend to roll with the punches. So if they don't choose to be a friend, then that, that's one of the consequences that you're going to have to face. You know, and Believe it or not, I've known people uh, that said, I, I don't want to come out. I don't want to scare away the people who I have, have decades with and who I trust and love. And, and I can't say I don't respect that decision because I do. That's the choice they make. They, but there's a pro and a con to that. The pro is everybody's in place and you're cool. The con is you're living a lie and you don't really know who these people are in the end until the truth is out about anything. That's, that's to me, that's the test of friendship. That's my definition of it. It might not be yours. Maybe you have a different definition. But I always found out that the people that stuck around when something bad happened, those were going to be my friends. Because if they can handle the bad, because it's so easy to handle the good, okay? Then I know they're going to be around. So thick and thin. So you don't know in the end when you do something like that. Do you have acquaintances or do you have friends? Do you have hanger-ons or do you have friends? You don't know. You will know when you do that. And some people, they can't do that. I know the guy that I work, that I work with, and I was his um, working superior when I worked for the government. Really cool guy. Very reliable person. Couldn't ask anything more from him. One day he comes into my office and he just dropped a bomb on me. Listen, I'm, I've always felt I'm a woman and I've been preparing for quite some time to do this and I need your help. That's literally what he, he, he came out to begin with to say. And I'm like, um, listen, man, I'm, I'm running a, a veteran senior program and it doesn't really, uh, doesn't really uh, involve a, uh, uh, transsexual reassignments, okay? I, I, I mean, other than a, a few things I've seen on the news, it's not like I know any damn thing about what you're talking about. Now, if we're talking about that you need some time off to go do this, yeah, let's go figure that out together. But that's no different than if you're getting surgery for a gallbladder or, or, or getting your tummy tucked or, or going on vacation to Bermuda for a couple of weeks. It, to me, it's all the same. So what else are we talking about here then? It's obvious to me that it couldn't just be that. He's a smart fellow. So he said, I just wanted to lay it on you that, uh, you know, um, 
it's going to be somewhere down the line, but uh, it's going to not be for another two years because I can't really do this until I feel my children are out of the regular school system and gone on to college someplace else. This way, they're not, you know, in the midst of being bullied or having, you know, themselves hounded because their father is trying to become a woman. I'm like, yeah, I got that. I respect that. And you have to understand something. This is two years later, guy. And I don't know if I'm going to have this job in two years later. I could be doing something else. You might get somebody else in this job that don't give a crap what you're saying. Well, I want to be a hard ass about it. I can't guarantee that. But I respect your decision. I don't know if he just wanted to get that out in the open, but that was the guilt that he was carrying on for a while. There was times where I looked at him and I looked at him, this guy, this guy looks kind of mopey here. He looks sad. And I can see why. In fact, he seemed a lot better when he got that off his chest, so to speak. You know, and I told him, hey, what you're trying to do, okay, is important because, and I, I wasn't even married with children yet when, when this occurred, but I, it's not hard for me to understand family. It really isn't. Sometimes you do things for them that people don't understand. Sometimes it's done in private, in secret. You're, you're taking a sacrifice on because you love somebody. That's what he was doing, you know? It's, it's, it, to me, it's very appalling that people have all these names with these folks. And here's a man over here being brave uh, and in many instances doing the most loving thing he could do as a father for his children to help protect them. And he's doing this at great sacrifice for himself because, remember, the man is deeply unhappy that he's a man. He'd like to get on to be a woman and go on to a, a new life, and he can't. He's got to now stall out of two more years. Because we don't have a society that can handle that. And this was in the 90s. So, hell, maybe we're a little bit more about that now than we were then. But I know then it was like, forget it. It's going to have enough problems even when we're in college, let alone out of college. But all I can do is respect the guy. And all I can say is, yeah, if I'm here, I'll, I'll do whatever I can for you. I go, it might not be a bad idea, though, that if you get close to the mark, you know, maybe in like six months or something, and I'm still here. Let's put that in and make sure it's on the calendar. So no matter whoever takes over, they have to they have to now respect that time off. They don't have to know what's going on. It's not like you're writing on the damn vacation form, gender reassignment. Don't mess with me. You know, not like that. Just do it. Have the time out there blocked off and do whatever you got to do. It's probably not a bad idea strategically, but that's all I can really do. Help him get it off the chest. Try to understand what what he's what he's kind of going through, which I can't understand emotionally. But I can certainly understand it intellectually. Of course, now that I'm a father with children, I can understand, you know, the, the sacrifice that that man was doing. Incredible. I don't know if he ever revealed that to his children, you know. He wound up going into another uh, a field, which he thought it was better for him going in, uh, forward. I think he did that because I think that he knew that when he became a woman, that field would be better for him than the field he was currently in. And, and hopefully uh, that worked out for him. We really didn't stay in touch. I mean, we just workers and wasn't like we were friends or anything like that uh but certainly wish him the best i'm sure he carried out exactly what he was saying because uh that was a thoughtful loving man who was trying to do the right thing for everybody involved so i remember that to this day it, just, it stays with me as somebody that that does something selflessly does something and that's what that guy was amazing uh of course you have some folks over here and i see this in writing a lot where um, I usually reject it because I don't like propaganda at all. You have to be art. Even if it's art, you know, I, I remind people, you know, because you, you see a lot of this, what I, what I call the racial guilt thing. You, you have this a lot, you know. 
Uh, I've, I've seen people uh, write about things about that they feel weird about their own race because now they've succeeded in life. And what about everybody else that looks like me? I don't know. I don't even know if you can answer what everybody else looks like you. Is it that important to understand what their feelings are? Are you going to have all millions of these people tell you their answers so you can compile it? No. So it's putting a lot of undue pressure on yourself. That's what I say. I also say that, guess what? If you want to think about it that way, how about think about it in the reverse? How about think about that? You voyaging on ahead and becoming successful is a great example for others to be able to see that happen to look like you. You could look at it that way, too. You don't have to be depressive about it and negative about it. How about be positive about it? That's a good way of looking at it, too. And it's a good way to do it without having to feel guilt. Because I don't understand how you working your butt off to get to college and graduate and get a great job. How are you supposed to be feeling bad about that? That's the American dream. All we could do is salute you. So guess what? How about you salute yourself? That's really the problem with a lot of this stuff we're talking about on guilt. Is people don't spend the time to salute themselves. They're spending too much time putting themselves down for whatever reason. Don't do that. Handle your business to the best of your ability. If you do it that way, and that's true in your efforts, you will never have guilt. You won't have any real regret. I don't know. I mean, if you love your wife, you can't have regret that you're married. If you love your children, the same thing. You love writing. You love being an artist. Well, you, you understand now that sometimes it's going to be a balancing act, a juggling act, uh, a shifting game of priorities, whatever the hell you want to call that. I just came up with a couple of terms there, all right? It's, that's what it is. So you can deal with it. You can do it without the guilt. Believe me, I do it all the time. All right, pride. I deal with this issue a great deal on people submitting things to me more than anything else. And, and one of the first examples I get of this is, and this is my favorite one, uh, the professor, whether the person is a professor of a different a field or just the professor of, uh, of literally the chair of the arts uh, of, of English. For a university, sending me work with a, a resume that not only is impressive, but usually the resume is longer than the damn work they sent me, okay? And the work is crap. And then I got to send it back. Now, I, I'll explain this all to you because pride is not always a good thing if it doesn't reflect reality, okay? Because guess what? When pride doesn't reflect reality, that equals arrogance, which is not the same thing as pride, okay? But they'll still call it pride, but it's not. Pride is doing something to the best of your ability. And quite frankly, I can't tell because no one's ever given me an honest answer. In fact, they usually come back and curse me out, literally, and we'll talk about that. I can't tell. If they're just giving me crap just because I'm an online magazine, some people don't have respect for that. They think that you're lesser of something, so therefore they're going to give you garbage. And that's going to get rejected right away because I'm like, first of all, this isn't working for me. Second of all, and I know my, this might not sound fair to people, but I don't care. We have every right to feel this way. You're the damn professor. You're the chair of English for a university. Which means that you're actually been a professor who's tenured at that point, because that's exactly what happens. You don't get to be a chair after you're a professor for a year. You got to be there 20 years. You got to have tenure already. You're a serious person in that university. That's the biggest point you can go to as a professor in a university. And you're writing this crap, 
It looks like somebody who dropped acid in Woodstock in between having sex with their girlfriend. They wrote this poem. That's how much crap it is. This is stuff I get. You wouldn't believe it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I have every right, and everyone else does. And some people, they don't think this is a fair comment. But guess what? I feel that it is a fair comment. Not only do I feel it's a fair comment, I believe it's an actually artistic comment. Why am I not getting better from you when you're a professor, the chair of the English department? Why am I not getting better from you from somebody that has easily been writing probably longer than I've been writing? They've probably been writing like 40 years, and I've only been writing 37. How the hell is this possible? How is it possible that my 10-year-old son can write a better poem than you? How? So I don't know if they're deluding themselves or maybe they're allowing themselves to be deluded because they send stuff everywhere and so many, so many people are so many impressed with the resume that they all get published. Academic people promotion here. Oh, yeah, that's good to him. He's a share of this. And this stuff is garbage. To me, it sends a bad signal. It sends a bad signal to all the other writers. Well, Mark. Uh, they just published his profession. Look at the crap he did. So why can't be mine any better? And, and you know, they got a point too. If somebody actually publishes this garbage, <laughs> somebody else is going to say, why, why is mine any worse than this? And they're right. That's why it should never be done. It sends such, such a bad signal, such a bad message. More times than not, I've had to turn stuff away. And I'll literally tell them, this isn't going to work. It's not cohesive. It, it doesn't make any damn sense. It's written poorly. It's written lazily. And, and you're supposed to be a professor. I have every right to demand more. Okay? And this is how I feel about lots of people. All right? If you're a teacher, okay, I think I should get a poem for me that actually has good grammar in it. I'm sorry. You're a teacher. I should expect that automatically. Now, don't get me wrong. As a writer, as an artist, you're supposed to already give me stuff that's been checked for grammar. Okay? But I think I should have a higher standard to the teacher or the professor. It's no different than a cop out there. You know, I'm not expecting a cop to be vomiting on the sidewalk, drunk, coming out of a building. I'm a cop. You know, I'm off duty. No, you're a cop. You're a cop 24 hours a day, whether you like it or not. That's a calling. That's an important profession. I, I expect better. You should be held to a higher standard. You should have a higher moral standard, even in the off time. You're carrying a damn gun on your off time. Did you not notice that? So what? You're supposed to now be a moron once once you, you, the ship's over and you take off the uniform? No. The standard continues. We expect it. Period. God knows if we had more of that, we would have had less of the problems we have right now. But that's another that's another show. <laughs> but it's no different than the same thing as writing. You're going to come out on something, then well, you, you, we expect more of that. Okay, I do. I mean, I got people that sometimes have been writing, they're telling me they've been writing 25 years. I look at this and I go, you got to be kidding me. Now, don't get me wrong. Even if I didn't have that knowledge, I'd be like, you got to be kidding me. But if I get that, I'm like really saying you got to be kidding me. Pride. Pride is all about us doing our very best to get something done artistically. That often means that you have to go and rewrite something again and again a couple of times. That's normal. That's acceptable. That's what you should be doing. That is, in my opinion, pride that you're trying to do your best. You're trying to get that connection out there. You know that it's not just there yet. That's what that means. But if you're rushing through stuff or you think your resume is going to carry the day, well, then you're no longer in the, in the room of pride. You just walked into the room of arrogance. 
and cockiness. That's not going to work for me. Remember, I see so much. I've read so much. I experience so much. I'm just not fooled. And guess what? Oftentimes, it's so damn apparent that I can share it with my senior editor or, or my other associate editor, and they're going, what the hell? You know? And I haven't even seen as much as I have, and they're going, what the hell? Sometimes I just want to do whatever I can to make every fair estimate. I'll ask somebody else, too. As long as it's within the, you know, the magazine. I'm not going to ask some stranger. I'm not going to share your work with anybody other than on the staff. But if, even if the staff is unanimously, what the hell? Well, I usually go with my first thing anyway, but I try to be as fair as people as possible. I've had some people say, hey, I'll try somewhere else, fine. I have other, I have had professors literally curse me. One guy cursed me so bad and threatened me that I actually called, I actually called the dean. He goes, I'm going to have to put you over to the, to the vice, uh, you know, um, chair on this. I'm like, I don't care who you put me on, but you better get me on somebody right now. And I had to tell him, listen, this freaking genius Send me a poem that's garbage. He's a professor at your place. And the guy's literally emailing me, cursing me out, and then threatening like he's going to come over here and hit me or something. Which, by the way, folks, I'm an Italian guy from New Jersey. Nobody's hitting me, okay? No matter who you are. And I literally told him, you need to do something with this sort of situation. I don't care what you do, but you better do something. And whatever is being done, this guy better actually be sending me back a letter apologizing to me because this crap is unacceptable. If he knows anything about writing at all, a rejection is a rejection, especially since I'm not a form letter rejection place. I give them a real explanation. His explanation, I guess he didn't like. Sorry, sir, this poem is not acceptable. It's not written well. I, I, I definitely have a higher standard for somebody in your caliber. With your resume, you're giving me this. That's literally what I said as my rejection. Straight out. That's my honest opinion. That's my, that's my judgment. It doesn't mean you come back and curse me and, and, and then try to threaten me. Ridiculous. They made the guy do that. Said, I don't know, I was in a bad moment and blah, blah, blah. You know, it doesn't matter if I accept his apology or not. He did it. That's all I was expecting because that's all they're probably going to be able to do to him anyway. Remember, he has tenure. You know, you, you got to practically murder five people on video before they get rid of tenure out there. All right? And that's that. I made my point and that's the end of the story. I don't expect him to send me anything soon because apparently... He sucks as a writer. He's probably been getting away with putting garbage out for years. Just living off his re resume. Not going to work with me. I don't play that. Because you, know, you know what that means? That means the housewife that just started writing two years ago is probably better than this guy's been writing 40 years. And the housewife, they ought to know that. They shouldn't be putting down because of, they haven't done this and they haven't done that with their life. If they work their ass off in writing something and, and wind up writing it well, it's going to get published. And yes. It's going to get published before that moron, period. Because that's what you do in, in, in writing is you do your best to be fair to people and not encourage them to be any more guilt-led or any more full of uh, wrongful pride or any more full of depression or anyone just feeling down on themselves. He ought to feel down on himself. He ought to, he ought to be ashamed of himself, not just for his conduct, but for his friggin' writing, okay? Because at this point right now, I wouldn't even put it in my cat box. I don't even deserve to poop on that. You should poop on something better. Really. So you get a lot of that. You get you get uh, folks that sometimes uh, they have uh, issues with their, with their pride in, in terms of their upbringing. You know, I, I have a lot of people that they send me stuff that ultimately is boring. 
I mean, it might be written technically well. It means that it obeys punctuation rules and it obeys grammar. But again, art, and that's what writing is, and that's what we publish over here, it has to have a dimension to it beyond the superficial grammar. It has to have what they call a measure of heart, a piece of soul, something that we can hang our hat on other than just a, a clever word phrase. Or maybe just a straightforward blah, 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 and I'm about to fall asleep. I get that a lot. And then, you know, sometimes they, they get back to rejection and they're like, you know, but um, I've been a, a master's in this and I've done that and I've traveled around the world. And I'm like, that's all great. Can you figure out how to distill all that into something that has art? Because either you don't feel the art in you or you're just too busy redoing something and just, just simply writing the heart or the character or, or or the soul out of it. Or maybe you just don't know how to put it in there. Or maybe, and I'm not trying to be mean here, maybe you just don't have it at all. It happens. I got a lot of folks here that write me stuff from, that they have very privileged upbringings. And some of them, you, you'll see them on the streets right now. They come from suburbs where everybody looks the same as they do, but they're going to give you sermons about how you should treat other people. Even though those other people are not even in their lives, they don't even live next to them. But they're experts on, on the social conditionings of somebody else. Okay? I get people like that that send me writing all the time. And I'm like, I don't know. Is this a, a bad exercise from a creating writing course? Huh? Is this the draft from something you did at a community center in between protesting? Because I don't know what the hell this is. But it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have any life to it. And that's why you have to really take that into account. I know I know a, a writing instructor, his name is uh, Michael Griffiths. He's, he's a, a great guy and a, a fabulous writer. There is somebody out there that, you know, they've had to deal with some ups and downs in their lives. And there's somebody that, that is also instructor helping other people to be creative. And there's somebody that, that's also a writer. And all together, all of that, you get exactly what you should get out of that. Great writing, stuff that has heart, stuff that has soul, stuff that has feeling. And I, I have no problem publishing it because it's all there. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to be Michael Griffin. But what I am saying is that's what it takes. You have to be able to do all of that. You can't just rest on it. You know, I had a tragedy in my life, so now you must take this poem. No, it still has to be art. But Mark, I, um, I'm a professor and it has to be art. Mark, I'm a instructor. I teach people to write all day long. That's great. That's be art. That's what he does. And this is what I expect from everyone as well. It cannot be a different standard. If anyone knows me right, right now, I don't have different standards. I only have one standard. It annoys the world because they all want to have 100 standards. I want to have people all day long socially, at work, or on, on the show, or even in my, uh, my uh, literary journal. They all want 97 different standards. They all claim they believe in equality but they want different standards. They all want justice, but they want different standards. Well, guess what, folks? You can't have equality and you can't have justice on any level in your life, whether it's the building, the street, or your church, if you're not demanding one standard that we're all obeying, period. I don't know if that's possible. Well, I guess then equality and justice is not possible either. Because one way or the other, when you have more than one standard, you're not going to have equality. You're not going to have justice. Somebody is going to get shortchanged. It might be me in this situation right now, or with all these different standards that are out there. 
Monday could be you. So if you don't demand the one standard and you don't practice the one standard, you're not going to get anything. That's why that guy is a godsend to all of us. And if anyone gets any instruction from him or anything he has to say, well, that's something you want to listen to because he is practicing exactly what he's preaching. We need more of that in the world, and especially in the world of art, than ever before because that's the person you want to follow. That's the person you want to be like if you want to get anywhere, if you want to be look incredible, if you want to look artistic, you know, if you want to be somebody that can make a connection about anything. Well, that's the one right there. I have days that I, I'm looking to follow him rather than him looking to follow me because I, I look up to somebody like that because they, they show the way. I do my best to practice everything I preach. But there are other times where you just need to look to somebody else sometimes to get some strength. And that, that's somebody you can definitely rely on for that. So I'm, I'm happy to know somebody like that out there. I know a few others as well. I just bring him out as a, a perfect example of that. Well, pride, it means something. If you actually adhere to the definition of pride, pride meaning that it won't leave your desk until you think that it's ready. If that means it needs another week or another month, that's what pride tells you. Pride, it won't leave your computer until you think it's ready to go. That's what pride tells you. Don't hit that button yet for send. I think it might need to work on, on line four or something. I don't know about this word here. Maybe let's go to the thesaurus and find something else that would make it flow better. That's what pride does. Anything else is arrogance. Or impatience. Impatience in the sense that you're not really feeling too sure about your creative talents anyway. You're just going to send it out there. You're being impatient. And other times, you, you think you're brilliant, and that's arrogance. Impatience and arrogance, not helpful. Okay? Because guess what? In the end, no matter whether you're impatient or you're arrogant, you're, you're going to be sending me junk, and it's going back. Okay? Got enough junk. I don't need any more. Pride. Have it. It will serve you. And if you serve it, you're going to have a greater result. And your acceptance rate and how you feel about your creativity. You, you might even like to talk to someone about something because you have enough pride. Hey, you might reading this out and checking it out. I'm not sure about if it's getting what I want to get across. I'm not sure about this line over here. There's nothing wrong with that. There's really nothing wrong because I don't call that doubt. You know, I don't call that fear. I don't even call that, I'm not sure about my talents. That's really pride, that you're doing whatever you can to make that the best you can. That's it. You do that, you're going to be great. If you don't, well, you're going to hear from me. Remember, I don't have a form letter, and I don't hold back. All right, the last one of this show here is perfection. If anyone knows about a show I did on this in the past and in some of my other comments, I'm a great disbeliever in it. I think it's a bunch of crap. So we'll talk about that. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is more destructive to a creative person and a person in general. But, you know, we'll talk about that because there's another side of the coin on this, is perfection. All right, it's one thing entirely to write something from notes. That's my draft, and I'm going to go do another two or three, four more, five more drafts. That's fine. I think it could be ready. 
Maybe not. Let's do 10 more drafts. Okay? It's destructive to even believe in perfection because it doesn't exist. Okay? It doesn't exist. And the moment you do, that's how you just start destroying your talents. That's how you cause yourself more doubt that really shouldn't have been there in the first place. That's how you, you, you rewrite things to death to where it doesn't even have anything left in it. I suspect some of those people that give me some of that stuff I call boring, it, it might have it been better a, a couple of drafts ago. They just kept just drilling out of it. There's a point where you have to let something go. Just like I mentioned before, it's about children. It's the same way. You could spend all day long, every day until they're 18, giving them your values, telling them your, your theology, maybe even sharing some of your politics, some of the things you've learned about the world, this, that, and whatever. You know? And three weeks later when they're in college, you know, they're running halfway naked, taking peas on people on the third floor as they're drinking with three girls in the room. I guarantee you that wasn't my values. I guarantee I gave no instruction about that. So there's only so much you could do. You don't know when they're going to take in or take place. Maybe they still have to make a bunch of mistakes before those values kick in, before those ideas you gave them kick in. Other times they might, from the moment they get there, you know, they're governing themselves in a proper manner. People are very different that way. But there's a point where you have to just let go. You, you can't do any more than that. You can't run to college or drive down to it for three hours or fly over to it. What the hell? I talk 18 years about blah, 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 blah. Not going to do any good. Because you thought you were going to get perfection because you spent all this time? No, you're not. People are imperfect. So is your work. You have to learn to live with that. And that is meaning that you're going to destroy your art. Now, people say, oh, that's a bunch of crap, Mark. I, I read uh, uh, Road Not Taken, and I find that's a perfect poem. Well, guess what? It's not a perfect poem. It's a classic. Everybody loves it. Robert Prost privately. I wish I could have done some changes, but the hell of it, it's out there now. Even he had regrets and laments. Why? Because he still was holding on to a measure of perfection. He let it go eventually, but even he was like, ah. You know, you ever read The Raven? I can see at least three parts of The Raven where I can actually possibly do something to improve it. I've seen all the rewrites he did already in the, in the, in the back of the museum there. So he's he did it like for months. Kept changing things, kept changing things, kept improving things. Even he realized there's a point, this is done. You gotta go out there and do it. Now, there's been no comment about Edgar Allan Poe and his thoughts or anything else about if he could have improved it or not. But guess what? I, I've read it a few times. There's a couple areas I think that could be improved, but it's not. You're gonna leave it alone to the classic, that's it. It's a work of, uh, of genius, yeah. He did a lot of work on it. But even that is not perfect. So I'm telling you now, if the Raven is not perfect, oh, not taken is not perfect, why would you try to be shooting for a goal of perfection when you have certifiable masters not doing things perfect? You can't. And that's how you harm yourself. There's a good segment of people that once they slip into writer's block, you talk to them and you'll find out that they're overworking themselves because they're trying to be perfect when it's not acceptable. When it's not attainable, we're imperfect. And one of the parts of this show, Strength to Be Human, is the philosophy that I have behind it, based on my SMA, which is uh, Strength to Be Human in the Day of Machines. We need strength to be human. And the reason why we need strength to be human is because 
There have been people over the last few thousand years that want to try to make us perfect because they don't like the idea that we're imperfect. So you have the extremes of science that want to make us into cybernetic beings, somehow think that's some sometimes a wonderful thing. If we're chips in our brains and we're working around with all these, you know, uh, appendages that are now going to do something greater. How the hell is my life going to be any better if I could run faster? What the hell is that supposed to do for me if my arms are now mechanical? Because hmm? that's how I want to touch my children and my wife with, with friggin' steel. Yeah, okay, sure. You know, I don't want to be lewd over here, but if there's other things I don't want to touch, I don't want to do it with a friggin' machine either, all right? Who wants to do that? I want to have a chip in my brain? Really? I, I can't just have my own brain? I can't just try to delve into more reading and more writing and more things to, to learn, but to try to be a little bit more aware about things? I need a chip? But what? What do I need to think faster for? Creativity is not about fastness. It's about the slowness of the moment. It's about allowing things coalesce together, so that's why you can put things together. That's why the muse is there. It's almost like a supervisor over things that are already present, whether they're in your heart or soul, whether they're in your life, whether they're on the notes, and they all put together slowly, and then you piece it together as an artist until you have something that's that's coherent and interesting and creative that you can put out there to make a connection with the world. You're not going to get that with a damn chip. What the hell is a chip going to do? Make things better on the grammar? Nah, 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 nah. Needs a punctuation here. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah, I need a robot for that. No. You're going in the bathtub, robot, because you're not going to be in my life with that kind of nonsense. That's why we need to be strength. We need to have strength to be human. That's why. Because being human is not a bad thing. But too many people, they try to make it out to be that way. you got religion that says that, you know, you're just a stupid sinner. And that could be anything else until you go to a spiritual dimension. Really? What the hell am I spending all this time on Earth then for if I got to wait to be great in some other place? What the hell is the point of this? Oh, you'll learn some lessons, this and that. Yeah, you're right. I learned a lesson. Not to listen to your stupid ass. That That's my first lesson, okay? Because I don't need religion to be a good person, okay? And I'm still somebody that's telling you right now that I believe in God. I don't necessarily believe in religion. I don't necessarily believe that you need some spiritual transformation every five minutes in order to be a good person. Being good and having character is about making those choices and following through on that. That's what it's about. It's not about, about reading a, a verse in some holy book. I committed that to memory now, Mark, so I'm good. Really? Because guess what, folks? I've known people that committed Bible verses to memory, and they got no problem stepping over the homeless person to go get their poodle. Okay? And I know plenty of people over there that committed verses and all kinds of other holy books, and they got no problem strapping a bomb in themselves and blowing up children. So all of that didn't do a whole much for their character. The only thing that can be done something about your character are the choices that you make and the choices that you follow through on. That's what makes you good. That's what makes you bad. That's what makes your character or lack of character. It's not going to get altered by science. It's not going to get altered by religion. You don't need to be perfect, and you really can't. Because guess what? In the end, all that machinery is not making you perfect. It's just going to make you a freaking robot, a machine. You're not human anymore. And guess what? Once you stop being human, at my point of view, you stop being special. Because we are special on this planet. I'm not a big person on all this environmental stuff, because I think it gets extreme in many instances. But it doesn't mean that... I like pollution. No, we need to do whatever we can on that. That doesn't mean I think we should go around slaughtering animals everywhere, because no, I don't believe that either. 
That doesn't mean that I don't think the air could be cleaner. Yeah, we need to work on that. We just don't need to try to transform economies and put people out of work and destroy things just so we can make something cleaner. We need to figure out what the compromise is. And we've done a number of that already. And there's more to do. So it can be done without being, again, trying to be perfect. Okay? Because guess what? To an extreme environmentalist, perfection means that I'm living naked in a hut someplace, you know, living off the land, you know, drinking some water that may or may not be, you know, clean or, or good for me or not. And that's supposed to be my life. Really, I'm in the 21st century and we're, we're sending people to, you know, to Mars here in a couple of years. But this is the life I'm supposed to have now. I'm not telling you that the machines are bad. I'm telling you that if you try to use them to make yourself perfect, that's bad. And you become bad because it's idiotic, not attainable, perfection, a fantasy. It's sold in politics all the time. Look at all the socialist and communist societies to this day. They were sold on all that crap. Venezuela, richest country in South America. 20 years later, the poorest country, not just in South America, in the whole world. Just by adopting socialism, the promise of everything's going to be perfect. Really, how the hell is that perfect? Well, you're not maintaining the oil industry that actually made your country wealthy. Well, you're not doing all the things you're supposed to do in society. What, 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 what did you think you were going to do? Some stupid leader told them this, and they believe this crap. And this shows you that even with all the riches in the country, all the riches in the world for people, they can still be unhappy. Well, there was something wrong with that society way before all those riches. That's the problem. That's the problem with a lot of these societies that do this. They got deep unhappiness that's going on. And instead of figuring out how to solve that, maybe through some better choices, maybe through some therapy or something like that, they just think that there's some kind of program, whether it's a science or a religion or, or even a politic, it's going to be a formula that's going to save the day. Every single time in history, we see that doesn't work. We see, we see how science propelled Nazism and what happened with that. Well, we, we've seen with the perfection of communism what it did in so many of these countries, Russia on down, how it destroyed them, how it caused millions upon millions of, of people to die from famine, from disease, from murder from the state. I thought I was going to get perfection. Why are you shooting me? Well, when I kill you, then it will be perfect. How, how lovely. This stuff doesn't work because it's not real. It's a fantasy. The moment you get yourself away from fantasies, maybe you could start writing a fantasy and put a cool novel out there. But writing fantasy and believing it are two different things, folks. So you have to understand that. And understand this. And you'll see this in your life, okay? It means the people around you. You might even see it in your own life, and that'll be up to you to see that. But you'll see it around you a lot. The people who want to be perfect, who want to always do all this, you're going to always find there's a couple things wrong with them. First of all, they're constant worrying people, constantly stressed out about things. Why? Because they're trying to make everything perfect, and they can't. Because we live in an imperfect world, we are an imperfect species. But that's what makes us so wonderful as human beings. If we were perfect, we would never have love. We would drove that out of ourselves because it's not a, it's not a perfect emotion. It's not even a long-term emotion. How many people have realized that you can fall in love with a woman and 10 years later, you're still happy she's in your life, but you don't have that same level of love anymore? It doesn't mean you don't love her. It just means that some of that spark, some of that, it fades. Well, guess what? Somebody who believes in perfection. We don't need love. It don't last forever. We got to do something else. Great. Thanks.
the very things that make us imperfect are the things that help us to become creative, that make us incredibly perfect in, in, in the sense of a creature on this earth. We might be the perfect imperfect creature for the earth, and we have a responsibility to make it better, sure. But I'm always worried about people that they want to go to this extreme, and you'll see these people in your life. They want everything to be perfectly clean, everything perfectly done, perfectly set up. You have to wonder about people like this. In fact, you have to be nervous around them because in the end, they're people they are going to have very, very harsh judgments about all kinds of things. And that's the problem with the perfection is you have judgments on people that are way too harsh. I wish they were more perfect about this. And I mean, I feel that somebody's reliable when they do most of the things that they're supposed to do. They show up most of the times on time. That's somebody that's reliable. Okay. No, they're not perfect. But a perfect person is like, that person's unreliable because they were late once in two years. That person's unreliable because they didn't listen to me about a certain thing once in two years. They're unreliable. Why are they unreliable? Because they're not perfect. How lovely. Perfection, folks. Stupid fantasy. And you're going to find people that believe in this thing. They're people that want to control things. They believe that the only way they can get any sense of reality or any sense sense of security is to control things and therefore if they can control things things could possibly be perfect that's the thinking and the feelings behind that all of that stuff is ridiculous it's all dysfunctional it's all unhealthy okay so people who have these fantasies of perfection you ought to stay away from people like this because you're not going to change their minds they're either eventually going to find out that this is dumb and wrong and moderate themselves to something that makes more sense or it's just going to have to drift off into someplace else, you know. And that, that's the reason why I, I have people in my life; they make sense. I'm not going to have people that don't, you know. So I'm going to have people in my life that have environmental ideas and concerns, and they're really doing something that has an impact that has nothing to do with fantasies. I'm going to ban all planes. I'm going to ban all trains. I'm going to ban all cars. No more rocket ships to Mars. Hey, that rhymes. Pretty cool, huh? Um, we, we can't do uh, anything electric because everything has to be through the windmill. And then we'll do some solar because you know how reliable that is. You know, cloud comes in, suddenly you've got no more damn power, you know. But let's make the batteries that can do that. And then Mark, we can store the power that way, even though making solar batteries are actually more pollutant to the planet than actually using the solar panel. I don't know if anyone ever realized that. The making of solar equipment is more dangerous to the environment than just actually having a smokestack come out with oil. It's actually worse. It's an incredible, an incredible irony, an incredible contradiction. It happens to also be an incredible truth. Do folks research any of that? Do they ever think about that? No, because they're working on the perfection philosophy rather than the reality. Okay? You want to be clean in the environment? You want to do things that make some sense? They have to make sense of them. They can't be doing that something that's pushing everybody out the door for, you, for your fantasy of perfection. It doesn't exist, folks. You harm yourself. You harm your writing. You're going to wind up harming your household. You're definitely going to harm the earth. I really think there's more environmental people that harm the earth than they do helping it. Because no one's going to sign on to stuff that says ban all cars. Ban all coal. Forget about the, the new filters on the stacks that, that take 97% of the poisons out of the air. Forget about that. That 3% is so dangerous, Mark. So there's a point where none of this makes any sense anymore because you're not dealing with reality. 
you're dealing with perfection. Perfection is a fantasy. It doesn't exist. And when you force it to make it to exist, what do you do? You ruin yourself. You ruin the people around you. You ruin countries. You ruin entire planets with that sort of nonsense. It's not going to be possible. So try to keep that in mind because when I find people that are into perfection, especially those people they call OCB, well, guess what? Those are the people that also, they find themselves depressed a lot. What is the heart of their depression? Because they're trying to be perfect when they can't. They wish the world around them was perfect. They clean the house five times and it's still not perfect. I walk into it, I'm like, are you kidding me? I can eat eggs off the windshield over here. I can eat freaking syrup off of your, your Venetian blinds, but this is not perfect. I don't even see anything in here. It's not. It's not. And so that's, that's when you know you're dealing with somebody that's not dealing with reality. As much as we're creative people, creating things that are always, always outside of reality in terms of where we're grasping these things and how we're actually creating, we are still talking about reality. If we're making a connection with people, it helps them to have a basic understanding of what we're talking about. So we can't be out there too far. So you have to learn to ignore that. If you have some of these habits, figure out how to try to reverse some of those in yourselves, okay? Don't clean the house 29 times, all right? The kid has some food on his face, but guess what? He's not going to pass out and die tomorrow, all right? We have to have a little bit of everything out there, folks. We, we can't worry about all the things that we really can't control. And more importantly, we can't worry about the things that we even can control because we have to ask the important question, the one that nobody really asks is, should I control this in the first place? Or the scientists, should I go to this extent in the first place? Do we really need this? Hmm? Do we really need an artificial womb to grow a baby? When it has so many negative implications on, on, on 20 different levels, when all you can do is if you can't help somebody to naturally conceive, maybe do the surrogate pregnancy and somebody has a baby. Or, or maybe just do, I don't know, the old-fashioned, more practical thing. Go and adopt somebody, somebody that can use a home and a, and a loving set of parents. I don't know why science can't consider these sort of things. They always have to be so scientific, go so much to the next frontier without really trying to realize or judge that this could have an enormously negative impact as much as a positive one. They don't do that. They say, oh, no, no, you're, you're a technophobe. You question that. Oh, no, you're a religious fanatic. Oh, no, you're, you're some kind of science bigot. Really? You're doing things that might alter the very fabric of my existence, and I'm a bad guy for questioning this. Really? I'm, I'm not being a, a, a good citizen or a good consumer by saying, I don't think this is a good idea. Have you reviewed this? They don't. They don't ask anybody anything because they're scientists. They're supposed to know everything. Well, guess what? The idea of perfection for you folks is also a dangerous thing. You need to pull back from that. You do need to have some ethical oversight. You do need to have some consideration of the impact that it can make. Because until that's done, we're looking at dangerous things right now. We're, we're learning right now that the Chinese, against everything out there, have now done the first editing of a gene in, inside an embryo. This is the, this is the first step you know, on, on trying to create a, a master race. 
This is the first step of also, if you can do this alteration, well, guess what? You can actually alter an entire species to have a disease that maybe it just becomes slave labor for you. And at a certain uh, year, it, it starts dying because you implanted that disease in you. As you can see, the implications for this are unbelievably evil. Unbelievable. Is there any consideration on why this wanted to be used on, on a regular basis? Oh, Mark, we could fix all kinds of diseases. Can we? How do you stop somebody from doing something extremely bad with that? Especially when they're in, in a nation that has no, no care about what anyone else thinks in the world. There's no law that's going to take over one of those societies. Remember, we're now in a point right now where we have countries that are communists that have the, they have the means to do things dangerous against everyone else. They're not so poor that they, they don't have the means or the technology. They now do. The space race is now going to be involved with nations we never expected before. It's going to get involved. 50 years ago, no one ever expected that India would become a, a world power that can actually put things into space. Neither did anyone expect China. Now, India is a democratic nation that, that is trying to be a good player in the world, and, and China is not. But nevertheless, there is two players right there that, that have, are doing all kinds of scientific things, good and bad, that we never expected before. So it's not just going to be about America and Canada and England and France and, and Holland anymore. Oh, we're okay. The, they have democratic societies. They're moral people. Well, guess what? There's other people out there that have different ideas and different values, different concerns. So if we're not figuring out a way to steer ourselves away from these sort of things, you know, perfection can be forced upon us and dangerous consequences with that. Is that something you want? So you got to consider that very seriously. As artists, folks, let's stay away from that. Sometimes you have to be happy with the fifth draft. Sometimes you have to use your gut as much on how to stop something creatively as to start it. And then there's other times where you have to simply be practical. I need to go on to some other stuff. I only have so much time that I can be put in the side. This got to be put over to the side. If I truly still think I'm having problems with it, I put it to the side. Maybe I come back to it another week, another month. If not, I'll give it a test run out there. Nobody can fault me if I'm giving you something that's what I consider pretty decent in my fifth draft. See what you think about it. I'm going to go submit that out there. I don't have any problem with that either. I can tell the difference. A lot of other editors can too. They might always tell you, I wish they did, but they don't. So there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you have to let things go. Like a child. You only can close that door so much before you've got to let it open on your own accord, or they're going to break through it. And when they break through it, they're not leaving in a loving manner. They're not leaving in a respectful manner. And, and you cause that. So let that go and find out. Maybe somebody might say something. Maybe it'll get published. Maybe you'll have happened what happened to me a couple of times. I come across something that I got published from a couple of years ago, and I look at it going, oh, shoot, I could have done something over here. I could, and, and you look at that. I'm not trying to be perfect, but I see a couple of things that now I might be able to change. I didn't see it then, but somebody else felt it was good enough to publish. I've actually went into a case a couple of times and then changed it and other kinds. I'm like, you know, I'll just leave it be. Nothing wrong with any of that, but it has to do with 
not believing so much that control is going to actually give you more security because you're going to find out control often gives you less security. In fact, the more people can control stuff, it's the opposite. They actually become more paranoid. You would think by logic that would make a, a different sense. Let me get this straight here. You control everything in this place. You should feel real secure and you're even more insecure. That's what it does. It's one of those evil opposites. So no, more control does not lead to more security. More control does not lead to more creativity. Okay? Oftentimes, more control means more volatility. And that brings the onset of writer's block. And that brings on, oftentimes, depression. We don't want to have that happen. But we oftentimes self-induce that by going to the extremes on many of these things. And we see it out there in PV programs. We see it out there in life. We see it out there in other people's writings. We hear people in interviews. You know, in the end, try not to take a lot of that stuff seriously. Okay? You have to start learning to feel, as an artist, where you can go and where you can stop. Where you can go and maybe where you don't want to go any further. And then just let it, let it out there. You have more to write. You have more to do. You can't just be about that one piece and you're spending like nine years on it or something. I, I read some, some woman told me on the internet the other day. She said, yeah, Mark, I, 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 I had this piece on and off with me for about 10 years. It was a short story, by the way. Not a, not a flash fiction piece, an actual much longer a short story. 10 years, she told me. I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm not trying to be unkind. But I'm like, uh, you don't think that was about like nine years and six months too damn long? But it could get rejected. Yeah, it could get rejected if it's what you think great too. That's why you have to question perfection. Question it just from that story I just told you about that woman. Because really, what was the heart of why she kept on to it? Why she was trying to achieve perfection? Because in the end, she was afraid. You're afraid of rejection. Afraid of ridicule. Afraid of, I don't know, failure. But it was all about fear. And that's bad. You can't be a writer and be full of fear all the time. You're never going to be anybody then. You have to send stuff out there. And oftentimes still do it with fear in your heart. And you're still doing it anywhere. It's just like a child. Send them out to school. You hope the hell they don't get COVID. You hope the hell that somebody doesn't come into the school one day and shoot all the children, including yours. You hope when you send them to college that no one doesn't accidentally throw them out the window and you break their neck. So you're still sending them out of your house with fear. It's always going to be there, but you have to learn to curtail it. You have to learn to live with it because it's not going away. Reality isn't going away. They could lock you up in one of those asylums and reality still doesn't go away just because you're in there. So that's what the fantasy of perfection is. It makes you do all this nonsense. You can't control crap. You can't even control fear. All you can do is live with it, understand it's there, and still proceed ahead. You know what they call courage? Courage isn't the absence of fear. You know, the absence of fear is insanity. Courage is the limited curbing of fear so you can get a, a job accomplished. Whether it's running through a machine gun nest to save your your your, your fellow from your unit, or, or whether it's 
I've done this poem for two weeks the best I can. I got to put it out there now. I'm not even sure if it's still done, but I've done a number of drafts and then let's go and do this. And I have other stuff I have to do. So this is going to have to suffice. Bye. Send it out. Have a good day. Now you work on something else. That's what courage is. Doing things despite the fear. Because it doesn't go away. You've, if you dwell on it too much, it'll be there uh, forever. If you just try to put it to the side. And that's what I do. It's almost like I have a mind with a couple of uh, signs in, in each room has a sign on it. And you know, I see that. I see fear over there. I see doubt. I see courage. I see anger. I know it's all there. Wave at it sometimes. And I still do what I got to do because it's not going away. So if it's not going away, only you are stopping yourself and just using it as an excuse. Don't stop yourself. You got to make the compromise in a relationship to get some art done or even to get the relationship in the right direction. That's what you do. You got to live with fear and doubt. Yeah. And you send it out. Laugh at perfection. Try to stay around people that try to be too perfect because I'm telling you, you're going to find those people and they drag you down. They stress you out. Sometimes even some of their ridiculous philosophy will rub off on you. Don't let it. They're in their own little world. Let them stay over there. Stay in your world, our world, the world of writing, the world of creativity, the world where we all have to be courageous every day just to call ourselves a writer and put something out there. Every day, hoping that we're going to make a connection. Every day, pouring out our heart and our soul and our mind and our memories and our childhood and, and all the things that we're concerned about, all the things that we want to be. We have to do that every day. So why do that in fear when you can do that with some courage? Why do that with the fantasy of perfection when you can actually live with the fact that imperfection is not such a bad thing? It may very well be the heart of all the creativity that we do. For all we know, this is where love and this is where creativity comes from. The very imperfect human condition that we have. Maybe perfection totally ruins that. You know, and I'll leave you with the final word. You're, I've known people already, you know, that they have tried to get to that state and they wind up hurting their creativity rather than helping it. Mark, I'm happier, but I can't really be creative. So, I'm not saying that creativity is supposed to be hand in hand with unhappiness, like it's the other side of the coin. I don't really believe that's always the case, but it can be at times. Yeah. So you have to live with that as well. But I don't know a writer that when they get accepted, they're not doing anything but being happy, feeling like what they've done has been justified, saying that they have arrived, doing a cartwheel if you can athletically do that. I can't, okay? And even when I was in my 20s, I couldn't. But uh, metaphorically, I can, and I have. Because guess what? And you might not know this. Maybe you haven't been writing as long as I do. But the feeling of joy that comes from being accepted it doesn't feel any different 37 years later. I just got accepted by a lovely Indian publication a, a few weeks ago. It doesn't feel any different than it did when I got accepted in 1984. It doesn't feel any different at all. You literally feel right back to that moment. Because 
That's how energizing it is. That's how validating it is. Okay? And I didn't need perfection to get there. All I needed to do was put down fear long enough to accomplish that goal and send it out there to the world. And we take the chance. That's what we do with writing. We take the chance. I'll leave you this with Paul Tillich, an important theologian and philosopher. Decision is a risk rooted in the courage of being free. It's a very deep statement, but think about it. Decision is a risk. It's a risk. It's rooted in the courage of being free. You need to have courage to be free. Well, guess what? You can't have courage if you're a control freak, if you're one of these perfectionist maniacs, because that's not freedom. And when you don't have freedom, you don't have courage. If you don't have courage, you're not going to be making any decisions. You're just going to be stuck someplace. We have to have all of this. We have to know when to make that decision. We have to understand it's a, it's a dice throw. It's a risk. We have to have courage to put that fear aside long enough to get that out there. And that, when we do, is the state of freedom. That's what creativity is all about. All right, folks, until next time, God bless. This was Guilt, Pride, and Perfection in the Art World, Episode 148. Smart Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.